0: Hey everyone, John Heilman here, and welcome to Hell in High Water, my podcast for the recount about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon. With big ups to my pal Rizza, the presiding genius behind the sound of Wu Tang Clan, and producer of our dope theme music. William Henry Cosby Jr. is indisputably one of the most successful and influential entertainers of the past half century. He is indisputably one of the greatest stand up comedians of all time, a figure of vast and undeniable importance in the cultural history of American race relations a progressive social innovator who did as much as anyone alive to integrate primetime television both on and off screen, a philanthropist who gave extravagantly to causes and institutions affiliated with African Americans, including a $20 million donation to Spelman College that was at the time the largest single gift ever to a historically black college, and the winner of eight Grammy Awards, seven Emmy Awards, two Golden Globe Awards, and the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Bill Cosby is also, of course, something else, and just as indisputably, a man now widely and justifiably considered an abject monster, credibly accused by at least 60 women of rape, drug-facilitated sexual assault, sexual battery, and or sexual misconduct, convicted in 2018 on three counts of aggravated indecent assault, and sentenced to three to ten years in prison in Pennsylvania, where he was confined until last June and that state Supreme Court overturned his conviction, citing due process violations, but whose appalling past will once again be center stage this spring, when he faces a civil lawsuit in Los Angeles, in which Cosby will stand accused of sexually assaulting a 15-year-old girl at the Playboy Mansion in 1974, the year after he won two consecutive Grammy Awards for Best Children's Album, one of which, chillingly, was for the record, Bill Cosby Talks to Kids About Drugs. Bill Cosby Past and Bill Cosby Present, Saint and sinner, hero and villain, role model and reprobate, the Cosby we once knew and venerated and valorized, and the Cosby we now know, and disdain and despise and detest. Both of these Cosby's exist, both of them are real, but as a culture, we seem to have a very hard time reconciling these divergent Cosby's or even talking about them in the same breath. That difficulty is at the heart of a superb new four-part documentary series airing now on Showtime entitled appropriately, We Need to Talk About Cosby. And to do just that, I'm delighted to have as our guest this week, the host, director, and producer of the series, the one and only, W. Kamau Bell.
1: Yeah, I've been complicit in sort of like, allowing this to just be in separate corners of my brain. Angry grandpa Bill Cosby, a uh, guy who's been accused of sexual assault and rape, and America's dad. I just sort of let them be in separate parts and
0: not sort of force myself to put them together. Kamal Bell has been doing stand-up comedy since the mid-1990s, but he first popped up on your TV set in 2005 on Comedy Central's Premium Blend, telling what appears to be the first televised joke about Barack Obama. Since then, Bell has been an increasingly prominent presence on The Tube. In 2012, his first TV series, Totally Biased with W. Kamal Bell, debuted on FX and aired for two seasons. In 2014, he launched a delightful podcast with fellow comedian Kevin Avery called Denzel Washington is the Greatest Actor of All Time, period. In 2015, his first comedy special, Semi-Prominent Negro, aired on Showtime, which was followed a few years later by a Netflix special, Private School Negro. And in 2016, he debuted the show for which he is best known, the CNN documentary series United Shades of America with W. Kamau Bell, which has been on the air ever since, completing six seasons, heading into its seventh, and winning three consecutive Emmy Awards for Outstanding Unstructured Reality Program in 2017, 2018, and 2019. Bell likes to say that he has built his comedic career around, quote, difficult conversations, most of them revolving around race. He also says that he has never taken on a more difficult conversation or one with more complex, nuanced, often troubling and sometimes explosive racial dynamics than the one he tackles in We Need to Talk About Cosby. Bell was born in 1973. He's 49 years old. Like many black kids of his generation and a whole lot of white kids, too, he worshipped Bill Cosby growing up, from Fat Albert to The Cosby Show and beyond. Like many budding stand-up comics, he was awed by the incredible string of comedy records that Cosby released in the late 1960s, which won six Grammys in a row for Best Comedy Album. Like all of us, but especially African Americans who revered Cosby with a particular intensity and pride, Bell has struggled to come to terms with the truly terrible person that Cosby really was, when he was making all of that uplifting, empowering, widely admired, and world-changing art, struggling to come to terms with it in a way that's both honest to his own experiences and that acknowledges the painful experiences of the women who were Cosby's victims and that reckons with the culture of sexual abuse, enabling and complicity, victim-blaming and victim-shaming that allowed his behavior to go on for so long with impunity. In publicizing the series, Bell has written that, quote, I wondered if I was making a mistake taking this project on. I have wondered that many, many times, even as I typed this. And, quote, This docu-series feels like it could be the end of my career. Many times while making it, I hoped it would just go away. I wanted to talk with Kamau about that, about the sense of jeopardy he felt in making We Need to Talk About Cosby, and we did. We talked about why so many, the overwhelming majority, in fact, of the famous comedians, self-styled, fearless truth-tellers all, that bell asked to do interviews for the series turned him down flat and of course we talked and talked and talked about cosby himself and about why we need to talk about him about how cosby's story is about more than cosby it's about race and sex and power and celebrity and assault and violence and really about america itself it is about the uncomfortable fact that all too often when we gaze upon a seemingly perfect picture of blue skies and sunshine stretching to a limitless horizon there turns out to be an uglier picture painted on the other side of the canvas. A landscape that's as horrible as the first one is beautiful. Landscape filled with hell and high water.
1: I am a child of Bill Cosby. I'm a black man. I'm a stand up comic. I was born in the 70s. That's the whole story. I was raised by Pat Albert, Albert. Picture Pages, The Cosby Show. Think about who I am and what I am. Bill Cosby himself showed me that you could be smart and funny in equal measure.
0: Why did you do it? I don't know. But then... Bill Cosby, three words for you. Guilty. 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 Cosby, eighty years old, was convicted today of three counts of aggravated indecent
1: assault. How do we talk about Bill Cosby?
0: That's Kamau Bell, the host of this incredible series about Bill Cosby. Kamau, great to see you. And I cut that that way because I think really that's the question, right, of the entire endeavor. Mm -hmm. How do we talk about him? Not even what do we say, but how do we talk about him? Mm -hmm. It feels like to me like it's almost like a linguistic philosophy question. It's not just the what, it's the how. Yeah, yeah. Quaristics, I guess, is what they call that in some fancy pants circles.
1: Yeah. No. how do we engage with the material? I mean, I feel like a lot of this is what I learned from hanging out with my best friend Jason and his high school debate club that I did not join, but I would go because I had nothing else to do. And it was like, you can't have a discussion until you define the terms. You can't have a debate until you define the terms. So that's what this was about. Is like, let's define the terms. Let's talk about how we get into this before we get into it.
0: I want to talk to you about the whole thing. First of all, the series is fantastic. It's really, really great. And and you know, you and I had a little conversation about this on Morning Show the other day, which I thought was really good. They played it long, which was great. When they actually aired it a couple of days later, they ran that thing like twelve, thirteen minutes or something, which is um great PR for the series. And I hope everybody's watching it. Especially since for all of us, you're a little younger than me, born in 73, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you and I grew up in roughly, you know, I grew up, I was born in 66, you know, so I don't really remember I Spy, And I want to talk about Cosby. And part of the brilliance of the series is that you're constantly toggling back and forth between trying to be incredibly fair and even-handed about this man was a giant, Mm -hmm. not just a great comic, but a social giant, a social innovator, a progressive, someone who was a role model to white America, to black America, to across classes, all of that stuff. And you give him his due. Mm -hmm. And then you also really, you know, make it very clear that he's a monster, right? But I want to talk about the give him his due part now, right? Mm -hmm. What, as we were growing up, And not really fully understanding exactly how important Cosby was. If you go back and watch this series, you're like, man, I thought he was important, but he was way more important than I thought. Yeah. So I want to step back to like the 60s, right? Mm -hmm. Talk about I Spy and talk about the other stuff Cosby did on camera and off to really drive change in the entertainment industry in terms of racial equity.
1: High was the thing I heard about, and I think we have to remember that the media landscape was different. It wasn't on reruns when we were kids. It didn't last that long, and it wasn't really a hit. Right. It was a critical hit, but it was not a commercial hit. So it just there was no way to even engage with it. So a lot of this is what I learned from making this series. But the minute he is cast on High Spy, as Michael Dennis, who's a commentator in the series, says TV history is instantly made in that moment because... He becomes the first black actor to be co-lead with a white actor on television. And he's not playing a subservient role. He's not his manservant or valet. Robert Culp and him are partners in this spy series.
0: Yeah, you could say he's the suave one, man. He gets a lot of girls on that show. I mean, he's he's in some ways the male lead on the show. Culp is a little bit of a goofball on the show compared to Cosby, Mm -hmm. who's playing against comedy type and is kind of like the James Bond kind of figure on that show.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting to think that the comedian is the one who's playing it straight. Right. But I think this also sort of goes to Bill Cosby's like, He always demanded to be respected, and he wasn't going to let the joke be on him. So it was almost like it's more important in this show because it's the first one that I'm the suave, smart one, and Robert Culp can take the hit as the funny goofball. You know, the first three seasons of that show, he wins an Emmy for each year, which is the first Emmy a black person ever wins, and he wins three in a row. And then, very early on in the show, and this is a story that I didn't know until after the accusations came out, and which is one of the impetuses behind me sort of wanting to figure out, is there a story to be told here? Apparently. Early in the first season on the show, he was on the set, and he sees a white man getting painted with black paint, and he asks what's going on, and like, that's your stunt performer, because the practice in Hollywood back then, and apparently it's not totally gone, but it is not the practice, is they did thing called painting down, which means they painted white performers black, and I want to be clear with this, not brown, black, they didn't... They didn't go find a color that was close to Bill Cosby's skin and painted that, but painted black. And then white stunt performers would do the stunts. And Bill Cosby apparently said, if you don't find me a black stunt performer, I'm not doing this show. Right. Which is an incredible thing to say when it's your big break and it's your first big shot in show business. No
0: shit. It's quite a flex. Yes. He was a star by then, but not on television.
1: No, he was a comedy star, which that's not the same. Comedy stars are still below regular stars. So I think it was like. He put it all on the line to say, you need to get me a black stunt performer. And they went and got him one. And everybody who studies this, and Noni Robinson is the woman who's doing a documentary about it, which apparently is going to come out at some point, talks about how that's the Rosa Parks moment. That's the moment that everything changes. It's not about a bunch of people. It's about him in that moment. And also, the big thing is, it wasn't in the news. It didn't make headlines. Cosby didn't go tell the story right away. He just did it behind the scenes.
0: Chris Rock did an interview. You probably remember, I know, because you guys are friends. He did this interview, with, I think, with Frank Rich in New York Magazine back in like 2014, 2015 that everybody really paid attention to. And he told the story as he was trying to make the point that there had been a lot of progress, even though there were still a lot of problems for black people in America. He was like, yeah, but my mother, when she wanted to get her teeth pulled in South Carolina, had to go to the vet's office because there was Mm -hmm. no dentist who would pull the teeth of a black woman. Mm -hmm. And they would have to go around back to the veterinarian's office Mm -hmm. to get a rotten tooth pulled. Mm -hmm. I remember reading that going... Fuck, man. I mean, we know about segregated drinking fountains. We know about Bull Connor. But it's just the little details like that that drive it home. And this painting the white stunt actor's black thing had the same quality for me of like, that was like 1965, 1966, right around the year I was born. Man, it's mind-blowing. Yeah. So here's Cosby comes in. He's integrating television itself. He's integrating, you know, on the cruise, the stunt people. He's integrating nightclubs around the country where he's performing. Like, you know, there are a lot of these nightclubs he's performing in. There's never been a black comedian who's walked in the door before. Mm -hmm. You've got mixed race audiences in some of those places. So, you know, the thing I did not know when I watched this was there's also a period where he goes a little militant Mm -hmm. in some of his rhetoric. Yeah. Like Mm -hmm. you think about Bill Cosby as the most unthreatening integrationist normalization meliorizer right Mm -hmm. in a good way in a lot Mm -hmm. of ways but there's a little place in there where he kind of decides he's going to be a little have a little flavor of bobby seal and Huey was in the rhetoric and some of his comedy in the late 60s
1: right bill cosby was always sort of like calculating and testing the wind to see which way his career would go and he also was like taking every opportunity that seemingly was provided to him so you talk about in the 70s you talk about in the second episode he's on kids tv he's on primetime tv he's on late night tv He's releasing comedy albums. He's actually doing some music albums. At some point in the late 60s, in response to the riots in black neighborhoods in, around the country, CBS goes, we need to put content on to sort of like address black people and white people to sort of talk about racism. Right. And he ends up hosting this series called Black History Lost On and Strayed yeah. that was written by Andy Rooney, which is just hilarious to think that Andy Rooney from 60 Minutes from the last two minutes of 60 Minutes, my whole childhood. Wrote this thing, and but his delivery of it, and I'm sure they did not expect this, is pretty angry and militant. Yes. I would imagine they cast him on it to be sort of like the guy who'd been on the Jack Parr show and the guy who'd been on I Spot, but his afro is a little bit bigger. He's got a tan leather jacket, which is the way, sort of the sign of black militancy. Yeah, And he is really like digging in and not sort of like bringing any of the funny, jovial Cosby to it. Right. And clearly it was a test. And it won an Emmy, you know, Cosby was at a point where he,
0: could, he was going to win
1: awards for whatever he did, but he doesn't take that persona with him into his career.
0: Right. It's interesting. I mean, I, you're watching it, you know, you feel like he had studied with Derek Bell or something or something. Yes. who was like yes. one of, <laughs> someone who invented critical race theory. Like yes. that's how he sounds in that it's special, but I want to get to the, you said the children's television thing. So we're in the seventies now, right? You're getting born. Mm-hmm. I'm, you know, seven, eight years old. I played the sound from the beginning of the program, and you mentioned Fat Albert. And I want to play a little bit of Fat Albert. And what you say about Fat Albert... Mm -hmm. Because I think I said this the other day, it's been my longstanding contention that there's literally no more important television program in terms of how race relations unfolded from the early 70s on in America Mm -hmm. than Fat Albert. Because of the way it got into the heads Mm -hmm. of, I would say, largely suburban white kids. I know it meant a different thing to black kids. Sure, But every suburban white kid I grew up with in San Fernando Valley watched Fat Albert every Saturday. And I can tell you, it had an effect on everyone in terms of how Mm -hmm. they thought about this stuff. So let's play Fat Albert and what Kamau had to say about it on the series.
1: It's Fred Albert. Rudy, you're like Thanksgiving Day at school. Thanksgiving Day? No class. Play it straight, gang. That way you'll get where you want to go, not where you don't. Right? Right. Without Fat Albert, kids like me don't grow up loving and trusting Bill Cosby. We don't turn into teens who love and trust Bill Cosby, and then adults who love and trust Bill Cosby. I just have to imagine that without all that wellspring of good feeling for him, it would have changed how so many of us reacted when we found out what we found out.
0: So you're a kid watching Fat Albert every Saturday morning, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was just like a part of my TV diet and it wasn't like I have to watch this because it's black. It was just like I'm watching this because it's good. I'm watching Super Friends. I'm watching Fat Albert. These are just the things that I do on Saturday morning.
0: Right, and it's part of this larger thing, right? Mm-hmm. So there was a great series, and it was very, again, this is not like a whitewashed version of blackness. And I think someone says it in we have to talk about Cosby your series on Showtime. Someone says like these are characters that you would only find in in a black neighborhood. Yeah,
1: right. Mark Lamont Hill says a, a character named Mushmouth. <laughs> you know, right, the idea right, that right, like right. and the kind of clothes they're wearing, and they live yes. in a black neighborhood. They don't live yeah. in like a white person's idea of a black neighborhood. And there's some rough elements to the neighborhood that I didn't remember until I started watching. Like, if you look at it a little bit differently, it's sort of like the way the King of the Hill really captures a certain type of the South. Yes, totally. This is capturing a certain type of blackness that black people go this is authentic. This doesn't feel like they're making fun of us.
0: It's also the beginning of, I think the beginning, or at least very early in the beginning of the evolution of this other side of Bill Cosby, which becomes a dominant part of his persona, right? Which is Dr. Bill Cosby, Mm -hmm. you know, with the ED degree, right? Mm -hmm. With a doctorate in education, right? You know, we'll get to when he becomes America's dad on the Cosby show, but he first becomes like America's principal, right? Mm -hmm. He's kind of like, I'm not just in this to be famous and successful and even promote social change. I'm in this to influence the way America's children perceive the world, how they perceive society, how they perceive race. And you will treat me as if I were a scholar and an educator mm-hmm. as much as anything. And that becomes part of like a big part of how people think about Bill Cosby.
1: Yeah. He's like, he becomes a public educator. And this is what I think watching those clips of fat Albert. I was like, this guy wanted me to learn, not wanted kids to learn. He wanted me <laughs> young Kamal Bell to learn. And the way he's able to talk to the camera directly There's an intimacy there and the charisma comes through. And if you look at even like picture pages, which a lot of people don't remember, but I remember that was the segment of Captain Kangaroo. It was all about like basic levels of education and curiosity. And like it didn't feel like a celebrity who's taking a check at all. It felt like this was a part of his mission statement. And it was important to him that you learned if you were watching at home.
0: This whole time, of course, he's getting more rich and more mm-hmm. famous and more rich and more famous. And and he's also continuing to crank out albums at an incredible clip, right? Yeah. All, he never stops making comedy albums,
1: right? They stop being as acclaimed as the ones in the 60s, but he's right. still making comedy albums, yeah.
0: Right, and he's all over the place. And, you know, you see him, he's guest hosting for Johnny Carson. He's, like, ubiquitous, mm-hmm. right? And then we get to the 80s and The Cosby Show happens. Yeah. And again, I just, I'm not even going to say anything again for anybody, for any, I have kids who work for me at the recount who were not born during the Cosby mm-hmm. 90, 84 to 92, I think yes, or yes. the eight seasons. Right. Just say from your point of view, what the Cosby show meant to America and what it's, what it was like as a phenomenon and how people looked at it watched it, experienced it, and the place it held in American culture and society in that moment.
1: There was a point in the sort of the 90s and the 2000s where every big comedian got a sitcom based on their life.
0: <laughs> right. Like that was just, if you were a <laughs> successful comedian in
1: showbiz, you were at least offered that, whether you took it or not, but you can sort of look at Everybody Loves Raymond, Seinfeld, King of Queens. Sometimes they're more semi-autobiographical than others, but there's the any of the sitcom that is based on your life. And it had happened before Cosby, but he becomes the template. So... The idea being that, like, when Bill Cosby gets the Cosby show in 84, there's a lot of things happening. First of all, America's post-civil rights movement of the 60s, and a lot of those kids who were born post that, like me, were growing up. And we think the civil rights era of the 60s won the battles. We thought they were like, you know, and 1984 is like we're talking about Michael Jordan's rookie year, Oprah's new to Chicago. We're talking about Whitney Houston. We're talking about Michael Jackson. Thriller. Thriller. Jesse Jackson is running for president. Like, there's just this sense of, like, black people are going to win in 1984. And Bill Cosby really was, like, the least likely of these people because he was sort of a middle-aged, over-the-hill comedian who had had a lot of shots. Yeah. But still, he had a lot of love in the black community. So when he gets a show, the Cosby show, black people go, oh, we got to show up. There's a magazine called Jet Magazine. I don't don't know if you're familiar with it. Oh,
0: I'm very familiar. But
1: back in the day in Jet Magazine, I I can't imagine they do it now, they would list all the times black people would be on TV in the last page of the magazine for the week. Right. So you would know. Right. So we sort of go, okay, these are the times we have to watch TV to support these black people. Hilarious. So Cosby Show is one of those things where black people are like, this is not a, do you want to watch this? It's like, we have to show up for Bill Cosby, almost whether the show is good or not. We have to show up the first week. Yeah. NBC was in the midst of a huge, like, they were admired in number three. Right. We had to cut this out of the doc and it hurt my feelings because we found, like, commercials for shows they had on before, the season before, and one of them was about a talking orangutan who was a political consultant.
0: No, that sounds like a show I would watch. No,
1: I mean, yeah. No,
0: I, mean, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I mean, I, that's a show I would watch. with the right well, yeah, show. Sure I'd you watch would, that, you would, that show. You would try yeah. to produce so, that show. So, 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 I'd be happy to be on that show. I could be the orangutan. Yeah. But that's
1: where they were at. And nobody is prepared for how good the Cosby show is. Just forget the ratings, but like instantly you're like, I'm in. The show is just like so well-constructed and you just want to be a part of this Huxtable family. And part of it is for black people in a time of trauma that wherever we look on TV, it's black trauma. This show is trauma-free, which just feels like a break. And then for white people, it's like, oh, look, this is a good show. I like this show. And maybe that's all they were at. They were just like, this is a good show. But it instantly becomes a hit and very quickly becomes known as the show that saves NBC, which means Bill Cosby's checks get bigger and bigger
0: and bigger. In that moment, it's, you know, the, the crack epidemic hadn't really hit. It was still a couple years away, right? Mm-hmm. Len Bias is 86. Mm-hmm. But the notion of the underclass, mm-hmm. you know, people talking about the underclass and gang issues and, you know, all these supposedly crack mothers having single, single mothers. So all that rhetoric of of black sloth and unemployment and single parents and all this badness, right, out there. Yes. Even alongside the things you just talked about, alongside Prince and Michael mm-hmm. Jackson and Michael Jordan and all that, right? And Jesse Jackson. So it's this thing where... It lands at this moment, and it's like all the reasons you just said why it mattered so much to Black America, which was what was great about this show was it was about a Black family that didn't have to worry about money. Yeah. And that liberates the certain kind of like, you never seen that. All mm-hmm. the other Black, all you know, Sanford and the Son, all these other shows that we love, you know, George Jefferson, all these people kind of struggling to try to make it. And these mm-hmm. guys have made it, and that yeah. comfort puts them in the zone of a lot of other American families and sitcoms. And man, the joy on the show is so evident. I mean, you do that incredible sequence around them lip syncing Ray Charles. I mean, you can't watch it and not be like, I love this family. I want to be part of this family. Like I want Cliff Huxtable to be my dad. Yeah. Like I want to be, I want to be in this family. And white people felt like that too.
1: Yeah. And then if you look at the numbers, like the highest rated episode of the Cosby show gets 65 million people. Yeah. <laughs> we're just laughing at the like i was as i say only the super bowl can be disappointed by 65 million people the highest rated shows now if they get 20 million it's like everybody gets a porsche you know like it's like there's (laughs) nothing like that now that the commands that kind of attention maybe over time but not in that everybody go to nbc on thursday night at eight o'clock and you have to watch because you don't know when a rerun's coming (laughs) like it has to be that night
0: it's just an incredible moment, and he, he is now kind of dominant. Jelani Cobb from The New Yorker says in, in the series, he says, you know, that Cosby's now called America's dad. Not black America's dad, but yeah. America's dad. It's an incredibly important distinction. Mm-hmm. And I want to now just fast forward to what then happens. And I, the series covers this, and I don't think there's a place where you really give your take on it. But, you know, after he leaves, we now fast forward a little bit into this century, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden, Bill Cosby becomes a neocon. And yeah. and I want to play Jelani Cobb setting this up and hear, hear what Cosby says, and then we'll talk about it on the other side. 2004, the NAACP
1: holds a dinner to commemorate the Brown versus Board of Education decision. Bill Cosby does something nobody anticipates. He gets up and delivers a
0: harangue against Black poor people.
1: And we got these knuckleheads walking around, don't want to learn English. I can't even talk the way these people talk. Why you ain't where you is, going right that. The pound cake speech. Who? This was intense.
0: These are people going around stealing Coca-Cola. People getting shot
1: in the back of the head over a piece of pound cake.
0: And then we all run out and we're outraged. Oh, the cock shouldn't have shot. What the hell was he doing with the pound cake in his hand? That's you, and they're saying the pancake speech. And it begins a whole thing. Like, he, this becomes his new persona, Mm -hmm. the cranky old black guy on his lawn, like an old white guy waving his cane at the kids, right? Mm-hmm. But he becomes a hero to Mitt Romney mm-hmm. and a bunch of and white conservatives suddenly love Bill Cosby, right? Yeah. And so the two things I want to ask you about, because you do address one of these things in the series, which is like that moment when someone who had been unequivocally a hero to black America for pretty much his entire career, suddenly there's like, mm, what? Wait, wait, what? And like, talk about the way in which it changed things for him. But also, I just want to ask you, what the fuck do you think that was about? Like, what is the explanation for why Cosby took that turn? Because I don't think the series really adequately, I don't mean adequately, it doesn't really delve into, like, what was the thing that drove Cosby all of a sudden to become that guy?
1: You know, I struggle with the pound cake section in the doc because we could have done an hour on pound cake. We could have done a lot longer of a deeper dive because there's so much to talk about. And the thing I want to really highlight that we did highlight in the doc is that, let's be clear, some black people liked it, too. Like if you hear the responses of the people who are in the audience for the pound cake speech, there's a lot of like cheering and laughter.
0: Here's the dirty little secret, which I'll mention just in passing. Like there's some speeches Barack Obama gave that were not that far from the pound cake speech. Well, you know, it's funny. We're not supposed to to say that out loud, but the truth is there were a little Cosby or some Cosby moments in Barack Obama.
1: Well, yeah. And there's also that thing where like Chris Rock's bit black people versus niggers is not totally dissimilar. It's just that Chris Rock does it from a place of like, I live in this neighborhood. Yes, right. And I think that that's the thing. same thing with Barack Obama. There's ways in which it gives access to what we call respectability politics that some people actually like, they just didn't like the way Cosby delivered it.
0: Yes, totally. And that he made it his basically his sole franchise for a minute that he, of time. That, wrote books on the basis of it. It went on conservative TV and gloried in the embrace of the right on this, right?
1: Yeah, it felt like much the way the Cosby show became a career move, this became a career move. It became like, oh, I'm getting more attention than I've had in a while because by 2004, when that speech comes out, the Cosby Show's been off the air for 12 years. He's had several other TV shows. None of them have hit to the level of the Cosby Show, which why would they? But it becomes like, oh, this is my new career move. I'm Black America's angry grandpa. So I think, one, I think a couple of things. If you look at the Cosby Show, there are moments of the sort of like strains of respectability politics, like Theo, you can work harder. <laughs> like yeah, that, right, At we'll some point that. they go, he has a learning disability. So it becomes clear, like, why just work harder. work. But there is a sense of, like, to those kids in the family, you have everything. There's no reason you shouldn't be doing better in school. And so I think that there is a sense of, like, you can start to see a little bit, a few of the seeds of that. But I don't think it didn't feel like it ever turned into the kind of, like, hectoring that it did during the pound cake speech. I also think that Bill Cosby, he says this on Oprah, he didn't understand the fact that he was being recorded and that recording could get out to the general population. So I think we were probably seeing what he thought was a private celebrity only or like sort of like closed circuit event. And this is two thousand four. We're like, we don't really do that anymore. Like we don't really we don't really let uh it's like sort of when roast went from being a thing that only happened at the Friars Club to when they happen on television. So he was sort of like, at his age, not aware of the fact that, no, 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 now media goes everywhere. And he had probably spent most of his career where media was not allowed in a lot of the rooms. And so for some people, I think they were like, yeah, this is the Bill." people who knew him. I think they was like, this is the Bill Cosby I've always known. And it tracks with the fact that like Bill Cosby's ride through school, like as a kid and through young adulthood, he dropped out of high school twice. He got his GED. He gets his first degree from Temple Based on, like, his life achievement and probably a donation, he gets his EDD based on turning in episodes of The Cosby Show and maybe somebody else writes his dissertation. So the idea being that, like, Bill Cosby was always sort of, like, pretending to be something that he wasn't and not being honest about how hard it was for him to get through school and how lucky he was to have the money to pay his way through some degrees. But for me as an adult at that point in 2004, it broke my heart. Yeah, right. Like, it really felt like, why are you turning on us? Like, I thought you loved us.
0: Yeah, Yeah. It's interesting because it kind of dovetails now into the Kamala Bell story. But, you know, we're right on the brink now of when, chronologically, of when suddenly stories start to come out about Cosby being a a rapist, uh, sexual assault person, drugging women, et cetera, et cetera. And as you pointed out when you wrote this piece to promote this series, uh, We Need to Talk About Cosby, you said that around that time, 2012 or so, right around the time when your show Totally Biased was on FX was coming out, there were stories around, mm-hmm. and they, eh, but they, hadn't really, they didn't really get traction. It's still mm-hmm. amazing to me that stories like that didn't get traction. It tells you it's like a lifetime ago that yeah. in 2000, a major comedian, Bill Cosby, one of the most famous people in the history of entertainment, mm-hmm. that there were rape stories around and we weren't all like running around with our hair on fire, but that was true. And so it was like chatter. It was mm-hmm. like internet chatter. But you say in the piece that this is the root of why you wanted to make the series, because that's what it first took root, was people would ask you, as they often do comedians, who was your favorite comedian growing up? And you would be... Conflicted at that moment Mm -hmm. by the time we get to 2012. Talk about that and how it sort of planted the seed that germinated into this series.
1: So, yeah. So, it's like the way that the press gets to know, and anybody gets to know a comedian they don't know, they want to know your origin story. Who are the comedians that inspired you? By that point, there were enough stories out there, which is again weird to think that it was like not a bigger story. I was like, if I say Bill Cosby, then it seems like I'm turning my back on the survivors. And even at that point, maybe I don't even know what I believe yet because I haven't even. Challenge myself to think about it, but I know it's not. A, I know I can't just say Bill Cosby's if nothing's going on. But if I don't say Bill Cosby, how am I a black man of this age who's not a fan of Bill Cosby, who's doing stand up right. comedy? Like that doesn't make any sense. Right. And so it just became this thing where I started to go, the artist formerly known as Bill Cosby.
0: Right. And would, he really was the stand up comedian you like most growing up, right? I mean, that's what he was at the top of your heap. Yeah.
1: Right? I mean, it was like, it would have been like, if somebody said Eddie Murphy is playing over there, Bill Cosby playing over there, I would have really had to like... Right, right, right. right. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Depending upon, you know, I. but though, yeah, between Eddie Murphy and Bill Cosby, I feel like there were sort of these two different extremes of blackness. And I felt like I'm somewhere in the middle here. I'm not, yeah. you know. But yeah, he certainly was a commanding influence in my life as a, as a stand-up comedian. And also... There was nothing that I knew if he did outside of his being a stand-up that was as influential on me as the Cosby show.
0: So you would say this cute thing yeah. about the artist formerly known as Bill Cosby. But again, you said that that's where the first notion of we need to talk about Cosby. That's like when you first started to think about there was another conversation that needed to happen. And that's even before we fully knew yeah. all the shit that we would eventually know.
1: Yeah. That w- I was just like, man, this is not satisfying. I'm getting out of this because I have some cute rhetoric, but it's not satisfying the thing. And I would see other people come out and talk about Bill Cosby and see them have to deal with the attacks. And then I would see other people defend Bill Cosby and be like, I don't want to be that guy either, but how do I find my place in this? Right. But it also becomes easy because people generally didn't want to have the conversation at the, you mean, people who were talking to me in the media and it's not until Hannibal Burris's joke, which forces a lot of us to reckon with this. So you're like, yeah, I've, been complicit in sort of like allowing this to just be in separate corners of my brain. Angry Grandpa Bill Cosby, a guy who's been accused of sexual assault and rape, and America's dad. I just sort of let them be in separate parts and not sort of force myself to put them together and Hannibal sort of forced us. And then after that, Barbara Bowman writes her op-ed and then all these accusers start coming forward. But we're still... At that point, it's like a crime scene. We're trying to figure out how to solve this case. Right, right, right. And it wasn't time to have the conversation. When Bill Cosby went to prison, I felt like maybe now yeah. that he's going to be in prison probably for the rest of his life or get out as a very old man, we can have this conversation.
0: All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with more out Bell on Hell and High Water. Welcome back to Hell and High Water. But your career is, you know, at that point, Totally Bias is, is on the air. It was not on for that long. A, a year, a much? A series that people liked. Chris Rock, I think, executive produced it when it was on. Sure did, like You go bro. back and you go back and watch it. It's pretty good. Um, <laughs> it's like baby but, pictures.
1: It's cute. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, It's trying it's, it goes, to walk. It stumbles, yeah. but it's hey, trying to walk.
0: Hey, babies are cutie when they're falling down on their yeah. face, right? You didn't fall on your face that much. But I want to. I actually want to play something. I think the first television credit that you ever had, which was from some years before that in 2005, someone claims that this was the first ever Barack Obama joke told uh, on television. This is Kamal Bell on a show called Premium Blend, which yes. is on Comedy Central. It's a big break for me. In 2005, telling apparently, the, it, either this apocryphal or true, too good to check, as they say in the business, the first ever joke about future President Barack Obama.
1: That's why I hope the black leader we get is Barack Obama, the black senator from Illinois. that dude is cool people say he's gonna be president someday my question is president of what (laughs) because one day there may be a black president but there will never be a black president named barack obama (laughs) (laughs)
0: ladies
1: and gentlemen that's too black
0: i mean it's a good joke um it's a good joke, and it's what a lot of us thought. And I'll, I'll tell you, yeah. you know, the only trick you missed there is I would have thought, you know, as, as Barack Obama himself would have said, you missed the Hussein because that, that was like a little research failing. <laughs> you
1: know? That got too complicated to bring the Hussein into it. I was trying to like, that was also my closer. And as every comic knows, when you're in the closer, you got to run for the exit. You, there's no time
0: for nuance. Yeah, also, you throw Hussein in there, it confuses people. Like, what? What is yeah, that? No, that talking it about, his, talking about, yeah. yeah,
1: it wasn't common. I mean, at that point, I was really more concerned that the audience even understood that there was a person named Barack Obama. This is totally 2005. After he had spoke out at the Democratic Convention in 2004, and that was
0: all people knew about. But it.
1: But he wasn't in the national spotlight oh, really in 2005. Yeah. It's like when comics have to go. Remember that movie? Like I was sort of trying to like remember that there's a guy named Barack Obama. I felt like I did a lot for his name recognition, but I don't know if he's ever given me credit for.
0: But wow. <laughs> let's get it. Let's get him on the line here. Because somebody get. Can somebody pipe Barack in here? <laughs> pipe Obama in here. We'll have a conversation with him because Kamal needs his credit. Yeah. So race. And racism is your persistent topic, right? Mm-hmm. And and I'd say two things, right, about all the work you've done. You know, you've made United States of America, uh, which has won a bunch of Emmy Awards uh, at CNN. And there's stuff that comes prior to that. But woven in the middle of all of it is I like difficult conversations. And I particularly like difficult conversations about race and racism. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not saying you don't talk about anything else. Sure, sure, sure. And it's, it's amazing to me because even though we have a, as a culture now – we reckon with race and racism all the time in our culture, sometimes in superficial ways, sometimes in less superficial ways. But for you, it's been, you know, really going back 20 years,
1: you know? Yeah, that Comedy Central clip from, I think it's 2005, that Comedy Central clip was a point in my career where like, I went to Montreal sometime around that time, but I was really starting to go, I got to focus on of the things that I'm good at. And if I'd been on Comedy Central two years earlier, it would have been a grab bag of stuff that it was right. not by the time I got there.
0: That's sort of the horse you rode in on, right? Is, mm-hmm. is that? Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, here's the thing. I wasn't invited to do premium blend before that because they were like, what is this? Like, right. like what, are you, what are you trying to say? And then I think by the time I got there, they're like, okay, we see what you're trying to say here. So I think that is definitely the horse that I rode in on to show business.
0: But it's interesting to me, right, that, you know, obviously in the era of Black Lives Matter, we have all these conversations about race and racism, and they happen all the time now, in comedy, on cable, et cetera, et cetera. Can you think of another comedian? I mean, look, Chris Rock, Dave Chappelle both talk a lot about race,
1: for yeah, sure. And that's like right? a different stratosphere from the room that I'm in. Yes. Right,
0: yes. And, and you know, and we could talk about them. But even those guys aren't – I mean, is there anybody else for whom – Race and racism at your level, which is again, we'll stipulate below Chris Rock and Dave Chappelle, but you're not like just your average working club meeting anymore. Is there anybody at your level for who is this consistently focused on all of the dimensions of it, the political dimensions, economic dimensions, social dimensions, personal dimensions, you know, the, all of that that you're trying to kind of unpack in various ways and that the Cosby thing is not solely about, but is an awful lot about?
1: Well, so it's funny. The first comedian I think of is actually a comedian who's a good friend of mine and he's not a black comic. His name is Hari Kondabolu and he's the guy who did The Adoc, "The Problem with Apu which was about his issues with the Apoo character from The Simpsons which he got. He makes the flack I'm getting back look very tame in comparison. <laughs> and so I think about Hari, like one of the things that bonded us is we felt like not that there's no other comedians talking about race and racism in the no. way that we do but who are so singularly focused focused on it. On it. That's what I'm the, saying. To the point of like almost like i don't want to do things that aren't this and when i try to they're not fun for me neither one of us is auditioning for crest commercials not that we wouldn't take one if they offered it to us but it's just like i just want to do this over here and so i think there's other comedians who are focused on identity but it may not be race so i feel like when i look at somebody like i see a connection between not that she might see it but i see like when i see hannah Gatsby, i'm like i see exactly what you're doing or not exactly right. but i get the thing that's inside of you that this industry doesn't really want, you're sort of like, I'm going to do this until I figure out a way to sort of make it my own. Right. So I think that, like, certainly I see other comedians focused on identity in politics, but the way that I'm doing it, I think there's a reason why when CNN, Vinny, our mutual friend Vinny, was at CNN and they were like, yeah. we have this show that we want to send a black comedian around to talk to people about America. And I think they were like, I think it's come out. Like, I feel like Vinny like, <laughs> <laughs> was like, I think I found the guy. It's not right. that other people can't do it, but the way they wanted it is like we want a black comedian who act- doesn't just make jokes about politics, but actually is politically aware and keeps up with current events and has things to say other than punchlines. And they were clear when I got there that they didn't want me to just tell jokes. They wanted me to have opinions. And so I- it's not that there's not other people who do this but i think there was a way in which i decided to stake that out as my place and really dug into it in a way that like you know Wyatt it's does this but why it's is also like a jedi knight nobody knows where he is so i mean there's right. other people who who do this but it's like i think there's a way in which i do it which is the way that i do it you know yeah
0: right i want to play a little bit of united shades you're seven seasons in yeah we're working on season seven right now i mean you have won a bunch of emmy awards a bunch, three, I won, three. I won three. That's, in a, a, row. that's a bunch. I won that's won a bunch. Three in, in a row. row. And three a yeah, and the be, show don't is don't won be, five. The show is yeah. won five. But I have. So that's three. a bunch. That's a bunch of Emmy awards. Yeah. Okay, first yeah. of all, and they're not small Emmy awards. I mean, you got no. a couple. We got we got an editing award. That's nice. But three. You got the three big ones, and three in a row. Mm-hmm. So you're kind of like the reigning champ, and the show is. I mean, it's funny because, you know, the circus is a different kind of show, but they're not totally different kinds of shows. In the sense that we're out in America, you know, and, and we're more focused on how to take you behind the scenes of the inside game of politics, although we still go out and talk to people. And you're not really that focused on the inside game of politics at all or the campaigns. You're really just focused on the place where politics has lived at the ground level.
1: I mean, if I could be honest, one of the things that I say on the show is like, I don't want to talk to any big city major politicians.
0: Right, right. Left and, and or the, right.
1: Like, I just right. feel like that's not where my interest is. I like talking to small small town politicians like yeah. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah
1: yeah, but not like uh you know as much as I could probably get an interview with some of the big city politicians it's not my interest
0: so I want to play some sound from the very first episode of the very first season of United Shades of America back in 2016 April 2016 this is you Kamau meeting with uh, an imperial wizard of the Ku Klux Klan down in Arkansas this guy said he was coming alone why did I believe him
1: Camera crew or not, this seems like a bad idea. First of all, before we start anything my voice is gonna be discussed, right? Absolutely. And I'm gonna let you know I'm the Imperial Wizard of the International Keystone Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. Imperial Wizard of the International Keystone Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. Yes, sir. I'm the
0: president of the organization.
1: You're the president.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: First of all, thanks for meeting with me.
0: Okay.
1: Uh, I guess my first question is, Clan, historically, as I'm sure you know, has been a uh, a group associated with violence. I'm not so sure about I know what I'm saying historically. And we're out to look at the clan in the 21st century. Don't you think that by wearing the same robes that, you're, that it's hard to separate those two different clans? Like- I have an opportunity to wear a clansman's robe. Why? Because I'm white and I believe in the ideas, rituals, and beliefs of the people of the clans.
0: I was raised that way. This is always going to be clan regalia. All right. What do you think you would say you've learned over these six seasons of making the show? About A, how's the country changed over those six years? Number one, and two, you know, as specifically relates to your main topic that you're mostly focused on where do you, well, I don't want to say where do you think the country is when it comes to race and racism? Because we, that's a complicated, we know, we know there's a lot of, there's a lot of racists out there. Um, but like, that's a long enough time to make the show that you can see change and evolution. I know I could say that, that we've seen it in, we're now headed into our seventh season of the circus. Same thing. We started in 2016 and stuff's changed in that period that I could talk about, but I want to hear what you have to say for me and out there with the folks.
1: So I think that like, I learned very quickly, we did an episode about gang violence in Chicago, uh, where, and I lived in Chicago as a, Kid and teenager in my early 20s, and we did an episode about ex coal miners in Appalachia. So, a lot of those were white coal miners, ex coal miners, and it was a lot of, of course, black people on the south and west side of Chicago dealing with gang violence. And the thing I sort of learned very quickly is like both of these groups of people want the same things better jobs, better schools for their kids, a safer community. Now, they may define how you get to those things in different ways. And when we went to Appalachia, it was when uh, Hillary Clinton was running against Trump. And it was like, so we'd see Trump for president, Hillary for prison signs, like sort of right next right. to each other. Yeah, and right. you go to the south side of Chicago and you just see, you may not see any politician signs for the most part, but you definitely right. aren't seeing Trump for president signs. So the idea being that like, we are told that these people are very different and that they can't get along and da, 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 da. And yet it's like, they all want the same thing. The problem is how do we get there? And the team sports of
0: politics
1: gets in the way.
0: The other thing they that well, they all want is they want to not be disrespected. Yes. It's like they want, yes. there's a thing about wanting to be respected and on both sides feeling like in some way, the dominant culture, the establishment, whatever you want to call it, their employer, like whatever, they feel like they're getting shit on all the time mm-hmm. and they're pissed about that. And that kind of thing of like desperate for some sense of like acknowledgement mm-hmm. and a desperate desire, not even so much for respect as to not be dissed all the mm-hmm. time, which is like how they feel. I feel like that's the same on the far left, the far right on like every just normal person who's out there struggling has that feeling now. And it's part of what you know Trump tapped into in a certain in the racist squadrons of America and turned it into a certain kind of thing.
1: Yeah, it's like everybody wants to be taken seriously. And it's about feeling yeah. like you're not being taken seriously. And then about sort of saying, we can't take you seriously if we take them seriously. So then it right. becomes about, well, then I don't like them. And that's the part where they get weaponized against each other. Like somehow we can't all be taken seriously at the same time. So I think that's the one thing I learned early on. And now, through the course of the show over the, like, six years that have been aired and the seven he's working on, specifically and a lot of this is related to COVID, it's like if you get a paper cut and you just go, it'll be fine, and you don't treat it, and you let that paper cut go for seven years, well, now you might lose your arm.
0: Yeah, right. And
1: I think that's what's happening right now in America. Like, the things that weren't treated before COVID have become even more untreated and really have been allowed to sort of really, like, turn toxic in a way that it feels really like America feels on edge in a way that it didn't feel. Because when I started the show, same with show, Obama was still in office and he was about to hand the baton to Hillary.
0: Yeah. We're going to loop now back towards Cosby and towards the thing of making this series. But just as we get into that, I want to just talk about a couple of these comics we've mentioned. because I want to get your snap judgments about them. We just talked about two Pantheon. I, I think maybe they're the best at the craft right now i'm not in this game at all but i i, I know people who, who who do this and i think there's kind of a rough consensus about this mm-hmm. that chris rock and Chappelle are the best right and you hear you yeah, Rock he, talk about he, Chappelle. He how much better he thinks dave is than he yeah. is it's kind yeah. of incredible yeah. do you think that's true are they the two best right now i think that if you talk
1: about the history of stand-up comedy in america you can't talk about it without mentioning both of them so i'd say whatever they are on your list i mean you even if you don't have them on your list because you don't personally find them funny because i think we often forget that personal taste does come into this sure that you can't talk about the history of stand-up comedy in america in an sort of expansive way if you're going to talk about lenny bruce if you're going to talk about george carlin you're going to talk about chris rock and dave chappelle
0: why is chris rock red because he's
1: like the athlete who knows what he's good at and what he's not good at and then he works his skills at what he's not good at or if he has a thing that he's really not good at he just sort of works the other skills hard enough that you don't notice that he's not good at a thing so he's like really like like I would say Chris Rock is not great at act outs on stage. Like he's not great at like disappearing into characters. Like he's not going to take on a voice and make you forget that he's not like Chappelle can do that to some extent. Richard Pryor was really the best at that, but Chris Rock is best at being himself. So he's going to really hone himself and his persona. Carlin also was not great at disappearing into characters. So he honed the George Carlin persona. So I think that like, Chris Rock is like an athlete where it's like maybe he can't go left, but he's so good at going right. He doesn't have to worry about going left. Yeah. And he also really approaches it like it's a job. Like he gets a notepad and he goes to an office or he goes to like a hotel lobby and just writes. It's not about like I'm going to get on stage and see what I can do. He treats it the same way his dad treated his job. Like you get up early, you do the work and you repeat it until it's good.
0: Which is kind of how Seinfeld approaches it too is like just Yeah, I think that's what they have in common. Just cra- very craft, like very yeah. like I just I write every day. I don't care if I'm worth a billion dollars. I'm gonna write every day and I'm gonna work on this joke for as long as it takes to make this joke perfect. And he also
1: understands that like he doesn't expect it to be good at the top. So if you see Chris when he's working on the new hour, he will go on stage as famous Chris Rock and bomb. Yeah. Because right. he's working on stuff. He doesn't get seduced into like, you know what, let me give him some of the good stuff so I can really and I've seen him go. Like he'll State, he'll get introduced. And everybody's like, oh my God, it's Chris Rock. And he goes, hey, you didn't pay Madison Square Garden ticket prices, so you're not going to get the Madison Square Garden <laughs> show. <laughs>
0: like, I mean, just like, <laughs> yes. Okay. So th- th- I asked the same question. Why is Chappelle great?
1: There are some people who are just like, they are just in this happen. Like he's like, it's like LeBron James. He's just made to do this. Right. And I'm not talking about whether or not you think every joke is funny or agree with every joke. But I've seen Chappelle when I used to work with him in San Francisco after he got back from South Africa, he can stand on stage and keep the ball up in the air for five hours. I wouldn't do that under threat. You'd have to like have my children. I'd be like, okay, I'll keep talking. Like he is the best at keeping the ball up in the air in a way that is compelling, even if it's not always hilarious. He is just a compelling public orator. I think he said one day he said, comedy is a language I speak very well. And that's the thing. So when Chappelle's on stage... You sort of can't see where the jokes begin and end because he's right. fluent in language. In a way, with Chris Rock, he's going to let you know this is the setup, this is the punchline, these are the tags. You can see it, which doesn't make it different. But with Chappelle, and again, it's not about whether you agree with his jokes or not. It's about yeah. the fact that he's like, this comes easy to me in a way that is frustrating to other comedians. But we also sort of throw up our hands and go, he's just doing something we can't do. In the same way that, like, right. that he works hard. I'm not saying he doesn't work hard at it, but in the same way that, like, trying to think some athletes it's like it's like michael phelps i'm just again i'm
0: just built for this yeah you're right you don't really see the seams it really gives the impression in a lot of cases that this is not a performance even though it's obviously it's a performance his performance skills are so good that you're kind of lulled into this notion that like all the little laughs and the stuff he's does these are the small things that make you feel like you're in this conversation with him do you think that the controversies damaged him at all no not at all. Not not in, in terms of his standing. I, for, I, I mean, I think, I, think forget I, commercially. I'm not talking yeah. about commercially. Obviously, he's still okay. going to get paid $20 million by Netflix to do the next series. Yeah. But do you think it's damaged him with his fan base in, in the critical community? Like, is, has it had any impact at all? Or is it just I mean, I think an are overblown? Are certain,
1: I mean, you've seen the think pieces. And I think there's people he has lost, and I think people he may never get back. I mean, I think that if he doesn't sort of evolve on his thinking on some of these issues, the issues of trans folks, but. I think that there's also people who came in to go, oh, I didn't know Chappelle was like that. So I think there's a sense of like, there are definitely people who he has lost, but he may have picked up other people along the way who sort of appreciate this sort of like straight talk or this sort of thing that confirms their own biases. And we know commercially Netflix is like, will it be excitedly do the next special
0: when he wants to do it? Given where you live, you know, in Oakland, and, and you're very embedded in the progressive community and in the Bay Area, right? And given your politics, does it give you any pause at all? I mean, do you feel uncomfortable when you listen to Chappelle talk about trans people?
1: Yes. I mean, I, I have spoken about this in some sense. I talked about it on CNN. I, you know, Dave is a grown man. We're actually the same age. I'm a few months older than him. We were both born in 73. I know he can say whatever he wants to say and do whatever he wants to say and do whatever he wants to, do, he wants to do. I just, I think... I think he is underestimating the amount of ways in which those jokes can be weaponized against people in the same way that like, that I'm sort of aware that whatever I say, and I'm not the level of comedian that Chappelle is or have level of fame, that if you're not careful about some of the things you say, they can be used against people that you don't want them to be used against. But I think some comedians are like, I don't really care. I just want to express myself. I just think we live in a time when it's like, You can do that, but there's consequences and you may not personally feel those consequences, but I think trans folks can feel those consequences. I even think the talk around him has been such that it's like there's been this sort of accepted narrative that like trans people at Netflix wanted to de-platform him or cancel him. And they're like, no, no, no. We want to have a conversation with our bosses. And I think there's ways in which when Chappelle talks about the controversy as he has, he's not centering it as this is not really about me per se. It's about these people in their workspace.
0: So now I'm going to ask about Cosby and we're going to come back to Cosby because here we are the last question before I start asking you about making this series. Like is Cosby, again, if we can just just for this moment, if we forget about everything Cosby's done, like if we can somehow create a thought experiment in which we just say, just on the basis of the comedic work as it mm-hmm. exists. If, some, if I was an alien and I came down mm-hmm. and I just had all the records and I took the best of them, is Cosby as good a comic as Chappelle and Rock and, and Carlin? <laughs> and Bruce, is he in that pantheon? Absent the crimes?
1: I mean, you know, first of all, there are people listening who are like, you can't absent the crimes. So I want to recognize that I hear you out there, people who are having that. But to answer the question, again, you cannot talk about the history of American stand up comedy without talking about Bill Cosby. And if you talk about his career as a stand up, it is among the greatest careers of all times. And so at this point, it's like, if you're going to talk about it like it's an athlete, like, do you prefer Michael Jordan? Bill Russell or LeBron James you're getting different things from all of them but they're all among the greats and so I think yes Bill Cosby that's the thing that is you know I wish he hadn't been such a criminal because there would be so much more room to enjoy the work
0: well I think you can have at least the conversation I mean there's that very awkward moment in the show where Colbert is asked, asked Seinfeld and he says oh you know Cosby of course Cosby's the greatest and Colbert says, I can't listen to him anymore. And Jerry looks so perplexed. Mm-hmm, He's like, mm-hmm. you can't really? Mm-hmm. I mean, the th- reason I think the thought experiment is possible is because we can take ourselves back to the year 2000. As, a, as again, as a thought experiment, we, I'm not trying to say let's pretend they didn't happen mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. we're trying to evaluate the totality. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to say there was a time when we knew none of these things. We could not have been asked to evaluate those things or put them aside. It mm-hmm. was just unknown to us. And his best comedy work is done by then, right? I mean, his best in the 60s and into the early 70s. So we can at least say, you know, from the vantage point of someone who didn't know about the personal crimes he committed, how do we can evaluate this work through that lens? I think you could have that conversation because we're not now having a conversation about how do we think about Bill Cosby. We're having a conversation about put the best stand-up comedians in their best years Mm -hmm. up against each other. Was Mm -hmm. he in that category? You think the answer to that is absolutely yes.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think this is the thing. We can have that conversation because we agree to have it, and I think some people aren't open to it. But yeah, if he had disappeared after Bill Cosby himself came out, he would be regarded as one of the great stand-up comics of
0: all time. And all I'm trying to do, out, is just say that in the series you do this. I mean, you have mm-hmm. other comics talking about how great the dentist bit, which is an all-time mm-hmm. bit, right? Mm-hmm. And the reason you can do it in the series is because you do talk about all the other stuff. Yeah. Just as we're also talking about some of that stuff in the podcast, for sure. Right now, yeah, we're going to sure. take one more break, and we'll be back with more out Bell on Hell and High Water. And we're back with Kamal Bell on Hell and High Water, talking about his new Showtime series. It's awesome, uh, awesomely good. We need to talk about Cosby. And Kamal. we were chatting uh, uh, before the break about two Hall of Fame comedians, Chris Rock and Dave Chappelle. And, and I want to pick up there as we get back to Cosby by playing a bit from another all-time great stand-up comic. This is a clip from Eddie Murphy's movie, Back in 1987, the movie Raw, which like every one of our generation saw like not once but a hundred times, and which still to this day holds the record for the highest box office gross of any comedy concert film of all time, (laughs) which is quite a statement. You play this clip in the series, Kamau, because Murphy goes after Cosby here in a way that was decidedly at odds with the prevailing sentiment around Cosby at the time. So let's take a listen and we'll talk about it on the other side and about how some comedians, even back then, had some misgivings about Bill Cosby's image sort of all along.
1: I've been a a big fan of Bill Cosby all my life. Never met the man before, but he called me up about a year ago and chastised me on the phone for being too dirty. I would like
0: to talk to you. About some of the things
1: that you do in your shop You cannot say filth flying filth flying filth in front of people. And I I never said no filth, flying filth, and I don't know what you're talking about. I'm offended that you call fuck you. I was so mad. I called Richard Pryor's house up and said, yo, Richard, Bill Cosby just called me up and told me I was too dirty. And Richard said, the next time I'm call, tell him I said, suck my dick.
0: Now, first of all, I just want to say, Eddie Murphy, those, both those impressions are incredible. Yes. <laughs> like, I mean, yes. he sounds just like Cosby mm-hmm. and he sounds just like Pryor. Yes. Um, here's my question about this as we head into the, like, you coming into this project, taking it on. It's like, did Eddie Murphy know like in 87, man, the Cosby shows at the peak of its power. And is Eddie Murphy just basically being like, I'm going to knock one of my elders off a pedestal? I don't give a fuck right now. Or does Eddie Murphy have some comics kind of insight into the fact that like Bill Cosby's like, maybe not what he seems to be? Is that like the way you feel about that? That he kind of had some prescience or some clairvoyance or maybe some information? Well, so
1: I would say this like a couple of things. Like I said in the series, when I started doing stand up comedy in 1994, Very quickly, I found out that Bill Cosby cheats on his wife, which is like, I'm an open mic comedian. It's just sort of these things that are known. Nobody said sexual assault. Nobody said rape. But the other thing that I found out, and I think Eddie Murphy definitely knew this, Bill Cosby was not regarded as a nice person offstage by people in show business. Right. And if you think about this, like Richard Pryor, George Carlin, you know, we can talk about Chris Rock and Chappelle, but let's talk about Richard Pryor. They would show up to comedy clubs and do sets. Like, they were still around the scene. Bill Cosby was never a part of the scene of stand-up comedy. So he was right. never, like, seen as, like, a friend to comedians. Like, Chris Rock helped me get my first TV show because he wanted to help me get through the door. But Bill Cosby, while he did give a lot of people their starts in their careers, he was never seen as one of the gang for stand-up comics. And many people, since this doc have come out, have told me stories of, like, they met Bill Cosby, they were excited to meet Bill Cosby, and he was not nice to them. Right. And different between, like, not, didn't want to take a picture or whatever, but really not nice or made fun of them or something. So I think there was an open secret in Hollywood that of Murphy probably knew that Bill Cosby was not a nice guy when he wasn't being America's dad. And I think that became even clearer the bigger he got. And I think even when you see some of the archival we have in the series of him talking to Charlie Rose. Yes. When he's talking God. about reporters he doesn't like, the mask slipped off and you see him, he's like an angry dude for a second. Yes. Anybody who wants to can get into show business. Now, how far you go, that's it. Don't get upset with me because you decide to become a journalist and you're only making $700 a week. So you begin to tear up somebody who's making $60 million a year that you begin to dislike that person. It, it is, it is, it's, 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 it's dishonest. It really is. And I'm like, $700 a week is still pretty good. Like <laughs> It's just... And so I think that, like, I would imagine that that one that Eddie Murphy probably had experienced him as not a nice guy in other ways, and had heard that. And two, I think there was a sense of like the Bill Cosby off stage is not the same as Bill Cosby on stage. Now, whether or not he knew more than that, I can't really speculate on. But I do think people did know that like the guy you see Cliff Huxtable is not Bill Cosby as much as he wants to convince you that he is.
0: So, I raised the, the Eddie Murphy thing because I now want to play Hannibal Burris because mm-hmm. Hannibal Burris has a pivotal moment in bringing Cosby down. And I'm playing this because it's just interesting. You we were talking about it before, Kamau. It's like there's the stories are around, people are talking about it. Once the rape stories start getting out, and yet they're not, quote, getting traction, they're not on cable news. I mean, again, it's all pre Me Too. It's still back in the early you know, 2011, 2012, 2013. Here comes Hannibal Burris, not a particularly well known comic in 2014. Eddie Murphy was 1987. Here's Hannibal Burris, another comedian. Talking about in a much, well, they're both pretty harsh, actually. Murphy's pretty harsh about Cosby. But here comes Hannibal Burris being much more direct about a particular thing Mm -hmm. that's all over the internet, but no one's paying attention. Even
1: worse, Bill Cosby has the fucking smuggest old black man public persona that I hate. (laughs) This on TV. Pull your pants up, black people. I was on TV in the 80s. I could talk down to you, because I had a successful sitcom. (laughs) Yeah, it was great women, Bill Cosby. So, kind of brings you down a couple notches. I don't curse on stage. But yeah, you're a rapist, so. (laughs) That shit is upsetting. If you didn't know about it, trust me. You leave here. Google Bill Cosby Rape. <laughs> it's funny. This shit has more results
0: than Hannibal Buhrs. So the Hannibal Burst thing is a little bit like just a replay of the Eddie Murphy thing. He starts with, basically, he's a, as annoyed at, at Cosby as, as Murphy is in the same way. Mm-hmm. But now he has the rapist thing to throw in there. What was the impact? When you first heard the Hannibal Burst thing, what did you think?
1: One, I thought, oh, there's no way that Hannibal wanted this all to come out of this. Like, knowing Hannibal, the little bit I do, I was like, he wasn't trying to be some sort of Avenger. He was actually just trying to be a, do funny. what Eddie Murphy did, where it's like, I'm going to call out a sacred cow who I think is not living up to what he claims he is. Right. And Bill, Cl- he's in Philadelphia, so I think there's some power to doing it in Philadelphia. And a little yeah. bit as a comic, he's sort of like, I'm going to do it in Philadelphia. Uh, I was very clear that, like, Hannibal wasn't like, oh, this is what I came to do
0: it's not a crusade it was it's not, not a crusade and it's not as, it's not
1: a bit that he's like a honed bit and the other thing i was like he's right i'm aware of these rape allegations but i haven't confronted it either and i think i did like a lot of people i think i did google bill cosby and rape and sfogo oh this is more than i even thought but i also didn't Some people, it was new information to them. It was not new information to me, but I hadn't, like a lot of people, I hadn't forced myself to confront it. And then all the allegations are coming forward and you go, you know, whatever you thought it was before, it is now somewhere around 60 and you just, it becomes overwhelming to try to not, to ignore. I
0: I don't know. At the time, I don't think I'd ever seen anything like this before. Handelbert is not that well known. This thing is viral. Virality was not yet what it is today in 2014. Mm -hmm. It was starting to be a thing, virality on the internet. And Twitter was around. And so, you know, things got around. But- this thing went was like wildfire, and I actually think if he had not done the Google Bill Cosby rape mm-hmm. thing, instructed people to do it, I'm not sure it would have had the same power. But there's something about in a viral clip that most people are watching online, they're not seeing it on TV, they're not hearing it on the radio, they're seeing it on their computer and having somebody who's now got their attention say, Google that, you, all you got to do is open a new a new browser window. And I, mm-hmm. I'm sure like when it started to spread... That's like potentially millions of people who are like, wait, what? Okay, I'll Google it. This guy's telling me to Google it. Holy Mm -hmm. shit. Mm -hmm. Holy shit, right? Mm -hmm. So these comedians are like kind of playing this role in all of this. And now you, a comedian, decides to take on this thing. And you said when you took this on, you said you knew this was the third rail. Mm-hmm. You knew that, right? When you took this topic on mm-hmm. to try to have this conversation about Cosby. Why was it the third rail? Like, why? You said you were scared to take it on and you were scared throughout the entire time making it. What was so third rail about it in your mind? You, and you again, in that time piece, you're like, I thought it could ruin my career. Mm-hmm. You still think that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, first of all, I'm never like the one who's like, yay, success. Like, I think so. I think that the idea being that, like, I still don't know the effects of it because I think, to be clear, there are people who may watch the doc, who may believe the survivors, yeah. but know that there are still enough Bill Cosby defenders out there that like, they may not want to work with me again. They may be like, no, you've become a little radioactive, even right. if I support the
0: work. But explain the third rail thing, like why it was scary from day one.
1: So again, America is a country built and is, in many ways lives on racism and runs on racism. So that sort of starts there. Bill Cosby was somebody who's stated purpose in his career was to fight racism and make the world safer for black people and he in his ways we can point to that he did do that and black people have taken him in as bigger than just a comedian he's one of our one of our um oh. for a lot of people the north stars i refer to him in the series and because america is a racist place even though there's plenty of role models and people that we could promote to places of similar stature bill cosby the mechanisms of america don't make that easy for more than a few black people at a time like you know i think about denzel washington there's always like Who's the next Denzel Washington? And right now the conversation is like, stop doing that. We need more than one of these people at a time. And so I think that with Bill Cosby, it's that sense of like, we can't afford to lose him because maybe America is not going to allow us to have another person to take the same space. So I think there's just a sense that like, even if he's flawed, which I would say he's well more than flawed, but even if he's a flawed hero that we have to hold on to him because he did so much good and symbolized so much. But then there's people who go, I don't believe any of these women. This is all a conspiracy. And it just makes the conversation more toxic because you're not dealing in the same way that like, I can't talk to you about the COVID vaccine. If you say, no, I'm afraid it's going to make me magnetic. I don't know how to have a conversation with you. So (laughs) it becomes a third rail because it's really hard to have a productive conversation. It's really hard to touch a third rail and get away unscathed. So I think that's the thing I knew once I touched this, There are going to be people in my fan base who are like, I'm done with you. There are going to be people in Hollywood who be like, yeah, I'm not working with you anymore. I don't want to work with you. And there's going to be people who never have heard of me before who now hate my guts who are also never going to watch the series.
0: I just want to say it's glad I'm glad we're not talking about the COVID vaccine because the COVID vaccine has made me magnetic. So oh, I'm like, no. glad we're not having that topic. Oh, yeah. Let's keep it moving. <laughs> I've got the, I got the microphone stand keeps like, I kept yeah, pushing I was, it away. I because that, of the I saw that, but I didn't I'm want like, to bring oh, it up. It now it's yeah. like, I'm fully Magneto man now. You have said in a number of interviews, you've said, and in this timepiece, I'm going to read this part. You said, I reached out to the comedians I knew had a stake in the conversation. That list is pretty much every comedian I knew, and maybe even every comedian, period. I quickly found out that I was among the few who wanted to have the Bill Cosby conversation. So Eddie Murphy's not interviewed in the series. Uh, Hannibal Buress, big, big player in this story, not interviewed in the series. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to ask you what people said to you, but I, I'm going to presume that like, there's no way you didn't ask Hannibal Buress to be in the series. He said no. And I'm not, again, I'm I'm too much of a TV person to be like asking you to tell stories about what people said to you. I wanted to get the, you, there's a lot of people who are in this series who had a role in this comedians who knew a lot of stuff you're talking about. And again, didn't know specifics, heard bad things, heard this, heard that. And then Hannibal Buress. A lot of these people aren't in there. People you have in the show are great. Mm -hmm. I mean, really great voices, fabulous. But it's obvious that there's like an incredible reluctance in that profession to sit down and have the conversation. Even though a lot of them would make jokes that the Golden Globes are on a show here and there. But to sit down and have the conversation, what do you, again, without getting any specific individuals, but I'm going to assume that there's some I've named here who turned you down. That's fine. What is it you think collectively that make Canadians who are pretty brave about a lot of stuff? I mean, in a certain sense, they take on Sacred Cows. A lot of these people did. Hale hey, well, Burst took down Bill Cosby. You know, what is it that makes them like afraid to sit down and have a conversation with Kamal Bell about this? So
1: let's be clear, I think there's multiple levels of this. One. You know, maybe I'm getting a lot of acclaim as a documentarian right now, but I did not have that acclaim before. So maybe there's a sense that they go, I don't know that this guy can pull this off. I'm just going to well, say. Well,
0: well, you'd won an Emmy. You'd won at least one of the Emmy Awards by then or yeah, two. No, no, so had, come but, on. I mean, I'm I just mean like, 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 it's like you were like some unknown kid. Kind of no, 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 sport. no. But what I mean?
1: think I just want to say that maybe it's about what they think about my work. I've won Emmys, but that doesn't mean you have to like my work. So so I think the other thing I would say is like, again, I think and I talked to some people who said no over the course of time and some people said maybe and then said no. Again, it's about this fact that like no matter how nuanced I try to be with this, especially if I'm somebody who's seen as connected to Bill Cosby or somebody who's seen as somebody who should be on his side because I'm a comedian, there's no amount of nuance I could bring to it that is not going to end up in my mentions on social media or or the next time I go to promote my new movie, I have to talk about this. You know, so the idea being that like once you start that conversation, you don't get to decide when that conversation's over. And there's a calculation about like even if you've spoken out about it before, you dealt with all the negative pushback for it. You just don't want to open it up again. Like maybe you came out very full-throated for the survivors. You dealt with all the negative pushback, and now you're like, yeah, I don't want to keep going there, and I don't necessarily see the reason why I should go there with you. I think it's a part of it, like why are we doing this now? I think there was some like, why now? And I was like, well, he's in prison now. And so I feel like this story's over and maybe we can have a productive conversation. Yeah. Well, that's what he gets out of prison. And yeah. I was like, Oh, I'm sure all those people who said no are like, Oh, thank God. I said, no, Yes, but in America, we're really good at like, now's not the time for the important conversation. Right. And I think the fact is, is like
0: never a good time. Yeah.
1: I don't know when to have those conversations. I just feel like I'm ready to have it now. And I'm ready to talk to whoever wants to have it. And I'll say the thing about Showtime is like, once they realized they weren't going to get those people, they really did understand that we got some incredible conversations in here and people who maybe they weren't f- as famous as these other people, but they came ready to show up. And it was more important that we got people who, who were come smart. ready to show yeah. up than yeah. it is people whose names do something on the poster.
0: Well, look, I mean, you heard me say already that I think the voices are great and they're powerful and they have a great effect and they're really smart, which is like the thing you most want, I think, more than anything. And, and the truth is, a lot of these cases, if you actually had gotten some of these bigger names, they probably wouldn't have been as interesting. And then you'd be like, curious, I know what this is like. You're like, I got to put that in, yeah. even though the guy gave a shit ass interview I yeah, begged yeah. him for a year. He's the biggest name we'll have on the poster. And he did a bad interview. So now we got to put it in. And yeah. fuck, I don't i have already tried to save every second. Anyway, yeah. bad
1: scene. Yep. That no, that's the thing that happens, too, is because I've seen those documentaries where you're like, oh, uh, that person's
0: in it. Oh, they didn't really yeah. say much. Oh, but yeah. why did they leave it in? Eh. Yeah. You do a thing in this in this doc, you know. You there's the barbecue sauce thing, which people, if you watch the series, you'll see. It takes you back to the Cosby Show. Here's Bill Cosby talking about how his barbecue sauce is an aphrodisiac, right? And everybody gets lovey dovey with the other barbecue sauce. There's the Spanish fly thing from the early comedy routine from the '60s, and then he brings it up again in the 1990s with Larry King. I'm raising these, but I could play them. I don't want to take the time. But basically what you see and what you elaborate, what you lay out in the series is the breadcrumbs, Mm -hmm. right? Just the fact that Bill Cosby, why did he choose to be an OBGYN on The Cosby Show? Mm -hmm. Why did he choose to put his doctor's office in the basement of his house? Mm -hmm. He was powerful enough, he could have been any kind of doctor. Mm -hmm. Decided to be an OBGYN, put it in his basement of his house. Like, looking at it in retrospect, it's like, oh, there were all these breadcrumbs. This guy was sending us all kinds of signals through his work. And I guess my question to you is, do you think that that's real. Like, A, did you discover those things while you were doing the doc or were you familiar with them before? That's the first thing. And the second thing is something like the barbecue sauce thing in the Cosby show. Is that like something that we now overinterpret it because we know what a monster he is and that the kind of monster he is? Or is that like a legit thing? Like these breadcrumbs really were there, which raises the question if they really were there, why people didn't see him earlier?
1: I mean, so I think that's where a lot of this conversation needs to continue to happen. So I know this, like, When I started working on this, I would sit down with people who were being interviewed, and you see some of this in the series, and people who were well read in on this, who had been fans of the Cosby Show, I would say, do you remember what Cliff Huxable's job was on the Cosby Show? And people would be like, oh, like a doctor, maybe a pediatrician. And then you go, OBGYN, and they go, like, oh, my God. Yeah, like, they just sort of hadn't. <laughs> and then you go, do you remember where his office was? And they're like, ah, wait, was it in the brownstone? You like, it was in the basement of the house. Oh, my God. And so there's this sense of, like, now that we know what we know, it just automatically colors what we're looking back at. Right. And I think with that barbecue sauce scene, I really do appreciate the fact that, like, while some people are like, ugh, like, Joseph C. Phillips, who plays Martin on the show, is like, I don't know. It was, even though he believes the survivors, he's like, Let's not make too much out of this. And Dr. Barbara Zib, who worked for the prosecution to prosecute Bill Cosby, goes, let's not be too puritanical. So I think what it shows is like we can have this conversation. We don't all have to agree on it, but it is at least an interesting conversation to have. I do right. feel like there's some sense of like I don't think Bill Cosby saw what he was doing as wrong because if he saw it as wrong, he would have done a better. Even though he I'm got away with it, it for years. Yeah, that's yes, right. right. He would have gone. Maybe not the barbecue sauce thing. Because that seems like that might be too. Maybe I shouldn't do an album in the 70s that's called Bill Cosby Talks to Kids About Drugs and Act Out What Downers Do.
0: Dude, he goes on on Larry King in 1991 and describes Spanish Fly and what it does to people and says, and the girl would drink it. Hello, America. You're like, dude, are you really like on mm. television talking about how great Spanish Fly is and drugging people into submission? Mm-hmm. So here's my, I guess here's my question. You were scared to take this on. You like taking on difficult conversations you felt kind of compelled to do this in the way that a lot of us do sometimes when we take on things that we know are going to be hard or scary, but you think it's worthwhile. As you said, there's never a good time to have a difficult conversation. And, mm-hmm. and this is a difficult conversation. So you took this thing on. What was the biggest shock to you in making it? What did you learn that you did not know that most blew your mind about
1: Cosby? So specifically, the thing I did not understand, because if you read the headlines, you just sort of like, go, oh, he's assaulted or raped 60 women how hard he worked to keep some of these women in his life for years years and the problem that one person had was that we should have used the word grooming in the doc and i was like that's a fair critique but just the idea that he was really grooming these women and some of them were fairly young and much younger than him all of them that we know about for some of them it was like like stacy pinkerton met him on one night and one event and got raped by him that night and sort of like that was it but for some of these women It was about how he, for years, sort of would say, would have the carrot of, like, I'm helping you with your career. He would fly them around the country sometimes. They would be introduced at events, like, this is my daughter. How long he worked and how hard he worked to keep some of these women in his life until they finally woke up and realized something wrong was going on.
0: I want to play one last piece of sound, which is your final VO in the series. And we need to talk about Cosby because it gets really to the core of the last couple of questions I want to ask you about what really... Having gone through the ringer on this, faced your fears, taken on this tough conversation, grappled with some very hard conversations. You can tell from some of the interviews with some of the victims. You know, where I don't want to say where you come down because I know this is not a true false test, right? Or, or even a multiple choice, but, but I want to hear you talk about it this a little bit. But this is how you decided to end the series. Here's come out, Bell.
1: This is hard. Honestly, there were times when I was making this that I wanted to quit. I wanted to hold on to my memories of Bill Cosby before I knew about Bill Cosby. And I guess I can, as long as I admit, as long as we all admit, that there's just a Bill Cosby we didn't know. And if we really learn the lessons that this Bill Cosby was trying to teach us, to be smart and moral, and not just to be good, but also to do good, then we can all help create a world that makes this Bill Cosby and others like him less possible.
0: So I guess the question I want to ask you, and I've made it like abundantly clear that I'm a massive fan of the series, because this is such a complicated thing, ending a thing like this is really hard. Mm-hmm. When you say this is hard, it's not just hard making this thing. It's like, how do you end it? It's mm-hmm. almost like I, as a writer, I think the, the great fear you have is that anything you're going to say is going to be too pat yep. and too and too neat, a little bow that mm-hmm. you put around it. Do you feel like you landed the plane or do you feel like, yeah, I had to land it somehow, but that feels a little too pat to me given how complicated the story is.
1: I mean, if I can be clear, I thought we should end it when Kieran Amayo said Bill Cosby's the key to understanding America. <laughs> like, I thought that was just like the end scene. Right. And then there was like sort of talk about like the sort of the idea that as a... As the person who has, quote unquote, hosted this, you need to also land the plane. Yeah. You need to sort of be the one who's the pilot who goes, time to disembark. And so, and I, here's the thing with United Shades, I'm always pushing against the idea of having to give the last word on things. Because I just feel like I don't always have the best sound. I don't always have the best take on this. So at some point, the thing has to end. <laughs> like, I, like I I, I, certainly, I, I struggle with those like ending thoughts. Because I think by the time you get there, you already think what you think about this. And there's no way to go. And we won. Yeah. So yeah, the end right. to me, the more important end is the part under the credits about like, do you or anybody knows has ever been a victim of sexual assault and rape? That to me is like the more clear part. Right. It just like, there is this pressure as a host to sort of like, and now tell us what to think. And I, I hate that. And so I would, I can't imagine anybody going, that's the best writing of the series. Like right. So right. yeah.
0: I, I think what you're saying is this is not your grand summation. No. You're not like, Hey, this is my last word on this. This is my grand summation, my great poetic mm-hmm. conclusion. This is like a, a conversation that's going to continue for a long time. And and that the ways in which the what this is about, and you've said this over and over again in the press on this, that this is about more than Cosby. Right. Yeah. That this is bigger than Cosby. And and I, I want you to just this is my last question to you is explain in that it's bigger than Cosby. What the series is really about is more than Cosby, mm-hmm. that this is not a, a story that ends with an exclamation point. Mm-hmm. It's really like, hey, this is the in some ways the start of a conversation that's going to have to go on for a long time
1: yeah i mean i really feel like you know and i've rewritten that vo since the series has come out because like a stand-up comic you can't stop punching up your jokes (laughs) so i definitely have like gone like oh that's what i should have said whether or not that was better or worse we'll never know because i can't change it and even in interviews i'm like oh that's what i was trying to say (laughs) so to me it's like if this is anything it is an invitation to specifically look at show business and go how do we reconstruct this industry in a way that anybody who deals with sexual assault or rape from anybody in show business knows where to go to be heard, to get healing and to get justice. That's the whole thing right there. And that is way bigger than Bill Cosby because Bill Cosby's not in show business like that anymore. And we also know that those structures are not in place yet. And so to me, that's the part that feels sort of scary about this. Like, forget whatever you think about the series. How do we actually make this a safer
0: business? That is, in a lot of ways, the, the beginning question, which was, how do we talk about Bill Cosby? That leads to this next question, which is, you know, how do you make a safer business and, and a safer world? society and a safer world so that people won't be victimized the way they are and won't feel so afraid to speak out when those things unfortunately happen. Come out, Bell. Thank you for taking the time. This is a delightful conversation. I could talk about Bill Cosby until my... You you have talked about Bill Cosby you until your hair... Until your, uh, your yeah, my is gray.
1: It's a much grayer than it was when I started this. Well, I was going to say, so
0: your hair stood on end. Your hair is grayer and it's standing more on end than yes. when you first started this. But listen, congratulations. The series is fantastic. I mean... There's some tough stuff in the series, but it's totally worth the watch. And you, you will be amazed by some of the stuff that you see. And I think, you know, you actually pull off the thing that you set out to do, which is like, I'm going to talk about both sides of the ledger mm-hmm. and, and, and not be afraid of it. So yeah. well, thank congratulations, you. It's a hard thing to do. Thank you for taking the time with us. Thank you, John. Thanks again to Kamal Bell for being with us. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Helen High Water and share us and rate us and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I'm your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Helen High Water. David Wilson engineered the podcast. Justin Chermel handles the research. Margot Gray is our assistant producer. Stephanie Stender is our post-producer. And Christian Fidel. Castro Russell is our executive producer.